Welcome to this episode of The Square. We are back. I'm here with James Adams for another um, another episode in the series of Architecture and Film, which is where we we kind of look at the idea of film, but through the lens of architecture. And we look at architecture through the lens of film. And vice versa, absolutely. And um, today, you know, th- the first episode, we really talked a little bit about just the idea in general. Today, we're going to be talking about um, setting and genre and uh, a few of the um, topics that go along with that. But what were, what were the two films that we picked for this one? Well, before we begin there, I want to say that what's interesting about this, and I think what made, a, made it a hard time for us to select some movies yeah. for this was, and we'll talk about this, is that genre and setting are inextricably linked. Right. I think that really made it a hard time. As more we talked about one topic, we realized well, you're really talking about the other as well. There were multiple times with Adam, our producer, we were oh. debating which one should go first, and we've decided just to tackle them and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. So to your to your question, we picked, we settled on two movies. Yes. And I think that they're they're interesting because they are, they're I wouldn't say they're obscure, but they're they're relatively low budget films. Yep. Relatively recently 15, made. Fifteen ish million. Fifteen million each. Yep. Right. And they were done in the last ten years or so, five ten years, and a lot of people have probably seen them or heard of them. I hadn't seen – well, I'll tell you what the first one was. I had not seen The Favorite. Okay. I had seen the second one, which is? Ex Machina. Ex Machina. And I'd seen that one actually a couple of times. I, I really enjoyed that movie. But I'd never seen The Favorite. So The Favorite, 2018, uh, Yorgos Lemianos. I'm probably butchering his name. Y- y- Yorgos Lanthimos. Lanthimos. Yes. So uh, – Reference my cheat sheet. <laughs> he is a absurd director, made some absurd movies. Uh, yeah. People may know um, the, lobster, the Lobster about yeah. ten years earlier, and also the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yep, those were his two, those were his first two English spoken films. I think he has five, ten movies before that as yeah. well. So the favorite took him in a completely different direction. Um, a very interesting period piece movie. Yeah, and and we'll talk more about that. But then the other movie again, Ex Machina, uh, two thousand and fifteen, also yep. a fifteen million dollar film, a twenty four production, um, and that movie was uh, Alex Garland. Alex Garland. Yep. And that movie um, is, unlike the absurd period piece that is the favorite, it is a cerebral psychological thriller. Yeah. Uh, Science fiction, a little bit of horror. It kind of crosses a few different genres. Yeah, it does. It's interesting. Well, yeah, without – so spoiler alert, but without giving too much away, the horror – a lot of the horror elements that kind of come at the end I think were even creepier because in some ways they were so void of emotion. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we'll we're gonna. So one of the things that I think um, really struck me is the the and this is kind of a little bit weird, but the in the favorite, the lens that the DP used was what it was like a six millimeter. Six millimeter fish eye. So it was yeah. it was a really wide lens, and the, I I think I had uh, an impression of why he did that that was different than what you did, which I think. Both can be equally as true. Probably yours is more true, but for interpretation, having been in a couple of those, um, you know, the the um, old English type houses, they're really pretty small. They were very efficient in their space, and that lens made them look so much bigger than they really were. And he was trying to pack a lot of things into a very small space, so that kind of gave him more room to work with. Absolutely. But then you were reading an article about the lens. Sure. Well, and also the director had a little bit to say about this too. Um, is that the idea with that movie? So let's let's 
let's back up a little bit and yeah. talk a little about the premise of both of these movies. Let's start with the favorite as we opened up. Yeah. With. So the favorite is set in like 1704. Yeah, it's a roughly. period piece. Yeah, period piece um, based on the the relationship of the queen and her um, the loneliness she experienced. Uh, she has she is a in bad health. Yep. She has a long-standing uh, lesbian relationship with, I guess it's her first cousin? Her, yeah, technically cousin. it's her. There's a relationship there, but she serves the the position of basically the queen's maid. Yes, yes. And the, um, I mean, this is, this is England in the yeah. early 1700s. Yeah. So <laughs> none of this is unexpected. But, but uh, and, and also I think an interesting thing about this movie right off the bat is that it is a, it is virtually and entirely a female cast. Yeah. Um, uh, what's that? The Bechdel test. Yeah. It's it's like the hallmark for that. It, yeah. I, I think it, it it almost it almost fails it backwards. Where I don't think there's really any scenes when two men speak. Yeah. In the movie, so very interesting play on that. You know, we don't get to see a lot. So to get back on point to your question a moment ago, so the setup for this is that Abigail has Emma Stone's character has shown up, and is suddenly vying for power in the court in the court of Queen Anne and. The way they film this is such that with the six millimeter fisheye lens yeah. and these very, um, I think the term is long shot, where yeah. we get the we get we get a full uh, head to toe of the actor in the scene. And they like the quick pan too. They, yes, there's a lot those, of quick pans in there. So when you do that, and the, and the quick pan, it's it's something I picked up on is that it's a slow quick pan. Yeah. Where it's slow enough, where it's almost as if a uh, you are in a first person with the camera. Yeah, and you're, you're not sweeping over. You're looking your head, over, yeah. right? And so, what that does in this, we're in this, we're in this. Um, this is all filmed in like West London, right? North London, I think, in two different places, and 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 old home, large, you know, uh, I think Downton Abbey type yeah. kind of homes, and small rooms. But they want to capture the entire environment. So it's this is also a very. Um, a time period, this is Victorian time period, where everything is gilded and and, and this may be a castle. I mean, it'd be quiet what we see in some other movies. We thought about Amadeus before. Right. Amadeus is very rich and laden with color and, and things, but this is still a much more ornament ornamented, opulent, uh, opulent yeah. environment. And the camera captures all of this in every scene. And it's weird. It actually creates a sense of claustrophobia because it actually captures everything in the room. And I think it's really interesting because it adds to that loneliness. Yeah. And you get these shots that are these long, continuous, not only long shots, they're long cuts, long takes. Yeah. So you get, it's very first person, but also confined. And if you watch Ex Machina, in that movie, we have uh, a lot, most of the scenes are very confined in tight quarters, uh, also claustrophobic, um, but they're, they're not, they're tight shots. Yeah. They're down hallways and corridors. There's lots of cuts. His use of glass, too. Oh, I mean, glass, it makes, yeah. because with the glass walls, it's almost like the claustrophobia sneaks up on you. You just really don't realize until, like, when the power goes off and and he stands up and is kind of like yes. you know touching the ground. You don't realize how claustrophobic the scene is until that moment. Yes. So let's talk about that too. So the the, the premise on Ex Machina yeah. in uh, t- uh, 2015. Um, this is a movie about AI, but it's yeah. a movie about. Uh, you know, ex machina comes from the phrase "Deus ex machina," uh, God from the machine, right? And um, the idea from, I guess that's Greek literature and, and and the theater of God coming down and and interacting in a scene to change the course. It, right. It's a tool in filmmaking too, as well. Right. It's a trope in filmmaking where um, sometimes well done, sometimes poorly. I think adaptation, uh, the movie. Yep. Is a really good job of using that to, to move the story along, ironically but effectively. Um, 
by the way, the term comes from that, and that's idea of this godlike power, right? And so the setting the, 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 or the setup for the movie is that uh, it is not in the future. It's I think the director said no. it's ten minutes in the future. Yeah. So that plays into the architecture a lot and the technology we see. But the idea is that we have a the wealthiest man in the world, and he is living a massive estate. Uh, he has he is the founder of um, the basically what is Google and maybe Amazon and other products. There's a little bit of Apple thrown in. Well, there Apple thrown measure, exactly yeah. and. He's played by uh, Oscar Isaac. His name is Nathan. 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 Nathan sorry, yeah. Nathan. And he runs his his company runs a uh, a competition, and the winner of this competition. What you think is a competition. think it's a competition. But, Spoiler alert. <laughs> but uh, the winner is Nathan Nathaniel. Um, Caleb. Okay. Oh, I mixed two up. Sorry. Yeah. Caleb. That's played by Donald Gleason. Right. I love about this is this came out the same year I think as The Force Awakens. Yes. And first time I'd seen Oscar Isaac. You saw him Donald in Star Gleason. Wars. <laughs> Just seen him in Star Wars, I guess, and then I saw them in this movie. So yeah. back to or maybe the other way around. I saw them in this first, and very different characters, of course. Um, and also this is a much better movie. But um, <laughs> about time. That's my favorite. Right. That's right. movie. But go ahead. Yeah, so, keep going. So Donald Gleason wins this competition. He's an employee yeah. for Blue Book, and he gets flown out in a helicopter out to this. Uh, we're brought through nature. There's several takes in the first few minutes of the movie. Them flying in a helicopter for several hours over uh, the landscape, and they're in north. They're in Norway, or I think western, northwestern Norway. And they don't say that in the movie, but that's where it was. That's where it was set. Okay, or hold film. on, take a quick break because I was actually wondering this because you did such a good job of nailing so many details about the house that we talked about in the first episode with yes. North by Northwest. Yes. Do you know yes. anything about this house? Yeah. So this, so this, this, this is gorgeous. I'm, it is. It's a hotel. I'm guessing the basement doesn't actually exist. There. Nope. Okay. Nope. It doesn't. A little, little bit of yeah. movie magic. Uh, that's there. what but I so It's filmed. It's filmed largely on location. It's a hotel uh, in Norway that is along a creek. I think it only has seven or eight rooms. Okay. Um, very contemporary design, and when the when the, uh, the the basically these are small, very modernist machine type rooms. They're all glass, floor to ceiling. Yeah. On sides facing the water, and the other sides of these individual little bungalows are like a wood cypress vertical panel system. So they're very they're little sandwich, little boxes, and they're just kind of all intermittently tossed along the waterfront. And the Juvet Landscape Hotel in Norway Got it. is the is the is the hotel that sets the the home. And so Caleb arrives by helicopter. Right. Caleb, yes. Yep. Arrives by helicopter, walks up to this house. That's one of the hotels, and it's just very super modern. Even the building. walk there, like he he was like just head that way. And he yeah, just kind of has yeah. to find a path. And eventually there's like it's not like you see this grand arrival. It's no. just a door. Yeah, basically, it's very blended into the, the into the landscape. Yeah, right there. You can't even see the waterfront yet, right? Coming in on the on the side of the brush and the shrubbery yeah. and whatnot. So you walk into the home, and immediately it's you're presented with a view through the front door. Yeah, to the all glass facade on the other side, where you can see the, the water running. Right. So he goes into this, and and this is where the movie magic happens. They then begin to combine a lot of these spaces. Um, I believe there was another set that I could not find any information on where they did actually. They didn't construct this completely on studio, the okay. basement. But um, there apparently was a home somewhere, I think also in Norway, that was built into the rock side. So you walk into the space. And it actually reminded me, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, in our first podcast that we talked about North by Northwest and the home that was a Frank Lloyd Wright-esque home that yeah. was the centerpiece at the end of the movie. Right on the side of the mountain. On the side of the mountain. Yep. Well, this has the same kind of effect. It's that James Bond 
uh, villain lair. It does. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you walk into that space once you get into the house and start walking downstairs a little bit and you have the rock walls that form into these concrete, clean concrete forms that make a fireplace and yeah. areas. And then you have that all glass facade looking out. So you're starting to get this kind of uh, dichotomy of, of these two different types of environments, right? But it's all very modern. It's all very contemporary. It's a machine. Well, this house is. And I think on the face of it, there were, I mean, these are two pretty different movies aside from oh, budget and the the you know when they came out around the same time you know one's a period piece and and it's in an old england one's very kind of high tech and 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 uh very minimalistic yeah, and yet minimal. and you you kind of touched on this a little bit the theme of isolation in both of them there were a couple things that i i i had again i hadn't seen the favorite i knew about it i i had read a little bit about it but um, there were themes that kind of emerged watching these back to back that I had never even thought of. And isolation is definitely one of them because you think about how Queen Anne, um, even, even in rooms where she had, you know, a, a valet or, or a footman, mm -hmm. she was 100 percent alone. And I, I distinctly noticed that the DP was did not use the fisheye lens, that room that's her bedroom with yes. the carpets. You see her in there sitting in the wheelchair or standing by the window or whatever, and she is so utterly alone, but they didn't use the fisheye lens. They use, they let it just kind of be what it was. Yeah. And then you've got— um, They do close-ups in some of those scenes. Yeah. And they also what they do in those scenes is they blur out the background. Yeah. Usually you always see— The depth of field see, is in there, yeah. Yeah, you always see the entire—we talked about the, in the beginning of this. We talked about how you see the full long shot. You see all the architecture, the environment, the setting that sets this up. Um Except when you were in those very focused shots about, no pun intended by that, um, no yeah. metaphor, <laughs> just that you're they're, they're, they're talking about the loneliness, and yeah. that's when everything else blurs out And then some of those shots. And I, I do feel like there's one difference, though, I think, is like Queen Anne, while it's probably not, I, I think it definitely contributes to her sadness, it's, it's not as self-imposed as maybe Nathan's character. Yeah. And and yet you still have these real strong themes of isolation and um, in some ways this you know like you were saying this godlike kind of feeling and and uh, Caleb's character says it a couple of times to Nathan oh you know it's it's basically if you if you create the singularity if you create this AI it's essentially like you have become a god to that yeah. and um, and then certainly in in the royalty in the in England there was definitely a a sacred feeling to it. Um, and so you create these isolations in two completely different settings yeah. using two completely different techniques. And I think it works equally as well in both of them. It does. It does. Um, to hit on a little bit more of the architecture too, we'll come back to that uh, on, and I was getting a little bit down a rabbit hole of I love it describing. When we rabbit holes. <laughs> but, but no, but I think it's, it's, it's interesting. It was the rabbit hole a play on the favorite no, and actually, what happens? The looking glass is a literal line <laughs> yeah. as well. So um, I think it's interesting in, in Ex Machina they make that, he uses that line through the looking glass and it's a reference to that, the game they're playing. Yep. They're playing this game uh, uh, in, um, um, in the favorite. Uh, yes. But um, so you have this upstairs that, that is modeled after this, that's filmed on location in yeah. a way in this, ho in this hotel, as if this is the living quarters uh, for our, our, our eccentric billionaire, trillionaire, whatever yeah. he is. Yeah. Whichever money he has. And it's bright, it's well lit, you get to see the environment. You're, you're in the glass, but in these scenes, through the amount of glass and the way it's set up, you are, you're not captive in the glass. Yeah. The glass is more protecting you. It's just shielding you from nature, but you're still with nature. It's full height. It's very open. It's it's yeah. it's, a, it's a positive. But then, as you walk down and you descend into what basically is this 
you know, billionaire's laboratory we're quickly yeah. introduced to in the movie. Uh, this is where um, our our protagonist, I guess, um, yeah. is introduced the idea that the other major project that's going on here is creating AI, creating yeah. creating um, robots. Which you still, I mean, you still have the floor to ceiling glass, and depending on how you look at it, it's still there for a protection um, against something. Uh, Maybe not the forces of nature, maybe the forces of invention, but still, there's, um, it's, from a really practical standpoint, all I could think about was like, man, how are they dealing with the reflections in that glass? Oh, that's a good point. Because dealing with glass on a film yeah. set is usually just a huge pain in the in the neck. But uh, um, I love how, again, like multiple times, you you see her confinement in isolation. You have this small box that that Caleb sits in when he's talking um, with Ava, and the confinement that he, he feels, especially yeah. when the power goes off and he's trapped inside of it. Oh yeah, both at the beginning and at the end. Claustrophobic. Um, that's interesting too. Those glass. The, the so when he's in there and he's in the op. So basically, the movie centers around a, a fourth or third, I guess, uh, actor at this point. So this is um, playing the role of Ava is Ava. Uh, uh, Al- Alicia. Alicia. Uh, Vikander. Vikander. Yeah. So I think this is one of her early roles. She's a, she is a uh, has a background in dancing. Yeah. Which is important because as her role as a as a robot as an AI robot, she um, had to develop very early on her own body language of how she was going to move. Right. And she wanted to create something that was uh, authentic to the role she was in. She wanted to do something that was unique. Unique, She was yeah, looking at was Metropolis and Star Wars, all kinds of different robots we know, and wanted to, wanted to get away from all of that. How do they create something more iconic? And that was a big part of the, the production team, it's, also her role as how she moves fluidly in the, in the role. I think the biggest compliment you can make about it is you don't think about it. Like, it's oh, very don't. in the background. It's very... It, it very much flows with who you think of her character is. It's not in any way something that stands out or is, um, you know, I, <laughs> when you're just speaking of Star Wars and thinking about uh, 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 Domino Green, I, you think about, like, some of the robot movements that are in yeah. Star Wars are so exaggerated or yeah. so um, forced because, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and yet hers are just so kind of, Intuitive as yep. to what you would as- oh, expect, yeah. and I, I, she nailed it. Well, and actually. the fact that um, not only does it seem natural, it doesn't just seem like a person in a suit. Yeah, she uh, there's no green screens. There was some time the way they did the set. The, the, part of the reason that movie was so cheap was they filmed it so quickly. Yeah, they did so many setups, like twenty setups, twenty five setups a day or something, which. It's a lot. That is a blistering pace. (laughs) So not a lot of takes either, I assume, with that. Um, Not a lot of setup. Which says a lot about their acting as well, because when you're constantly doing new setups and you're having to stay in character and thinking through, because obviously you're not shooting it linearly. Yeah. um, Yeah. That's incredible. So what the rooms that um, Caleb finds himself in, like his room, and uh, I'm thinking about the uh, kind of the workroom that had the big light table in it. There were these, the other thing that stood out to me in those rooms is when they are showing a screen. Here they have floor to ceiling glass, but when they show a screen, I mean, it's hardly bigger than like a 45 inch TV. I think that played played into, they wanted the technology to seem real for the time. Like he has a key card when he first checks into the hotel or walks up and asks him to look at the camera and takes a photograph of him. It puts out a little key card like we would use at any hotel nowadays. So it's not some kind of high tech technology. But you brought up a point a moment ago and you were bringing this up earlier as well that I want to hit on is that when... When he is in the glass observation box, so he's he is talking to this AI, Ava, yeah, Ava, and he's getting to know her. And the whole premise of the movie is that, or the plot of the movie rather, is that um, our 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 eccentric trillionaire 
is testing this AI on an individual, and he has not won a competition, as we said, as he believes in the beginning of the movie. He's, you think he's Elected. doing a Turing test, but it's almost a, a reverse Turing test. Turing test. Yes, exactly. And so he's being she, – she, Ava, is being tested to see if she can manipulate him to get out of her prison, right. which ultimately – the the lack of hubris in our in our um, antagonist, I guess you could say he is yeah. um, the foil to our 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 main character is that he believes that he wants it to happen, but he believes he could stop it for it ultimately would happen. Yeah, and it, the whole thing, sort of in a chaos theory Jurassic Park type way, unravels all the complexity of this. But I digress. When he is visiting, when sorry, Nathan is visiting um, with Ava in his observation areas. He's in a small glass box, like a little bit of a, a little room, a little bubble. I mean, it's it's not curved, it's yeah. floor to ceiling glass, yep. but it's this little bubble he walks into to her room and her space is quite large. Now it's confined, it's in a basement, um, and there's one little tree at the end yep. with a daylight. Which I love that the first shot of her is her silhouetted and what you're really seeing in focus is this tree and this idea of yep. growth and new, new beginning. Well, you're also, what you're getting is and these are all over the country in, in zoo experience. But if you ever go to like the the uh, the Dallas Zoo, um, the aquarium yeah. here in the here in the West End in Dallas, it's a fantastic facility. But there is a um, I'm not sure if it's a Black Panther. I guess it's in a large glass yeah, enclosure, yeah, 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 yeah. and it's got a, and it's indoors. Yep. And it's got a natural environment inside there, but it's got a little runway to go outside. Yep. It can escape and go out there and be around nature for a moment, but it can't go anywhere there. It's pretty confined out there, and then it comes back in. And it's actually kind of sad. You watch this when the – I think. I think a lot of people feel that way yeah. because they're, you have these – Animals that are mass. big, huge expanses be able yeah. to run around in. Yeah, yeah but also you're the, we're the bumbling masses coming in and looking through the glass yeah. at this animal. And that's how Ava is. She is like a lion or a tiger walking back and forth, talking to him through the glass – and he's observing her, but she you can tell she wants to escape. I mean, it's quite the, the 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 metaphor is quite obvious in the very beginning. And she has this tree. Like, why do they give her this tree? Why do they let her see there's something beyond? Yeah. Like you're only um 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 wetting her appetite or, or, or pushing her desire to get out when she sees this freedom outside. Yep. That then in, in between scenes, you know, they go the, the the humans go back upstairs, go outside, take a fresh brush of air, you get these large, wide open shots, it's beautiful. Um, and you see the the the, the separation. The, the, you see the disparity between, and it really drives home the claustrophobia of the of the architecture and of the environment and this minimal dark gray, concrete glass space that they're in for the majority of the movie. Well, and I, I that same area where that box is, I love how the director takes it. And initially, you know, Caleb walks in like, like he's the one in control. Yeah. Like he is the one that is you know, kind of in charge. And he walks into that glass box and he, you know, is very kind of carefree and jovial and starts having this conversation with her. And by the end of the movie, that's the same box that he is trapped in, yeah. completely, you know, out of control. He has zero control of the situation. You have, spoiler, you have no idea what happens to him at the end. Yeah. You could assume that he could die in I'm that sure box. He dies of yeah. there. Um, and, and there's this idea that the architecture of confining him what was his protection has become his prison yeah. by the end. Yeah. Um, what What is the architectural element? So you've got the glass, but then you've got these really heavy kind of concrete forms. Yeah. What do you think the relationship is between those two? Well, I think it's 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 again. You see most of the glass 
on the upper level. Right. I mean, you have the glass. Sure, you have the glass that confines and separates them. Sure, but it's but, not to the outside. It's a window. Glass yeah. is a metaphor for a window, for a, something beyond, something we can't. A threshold right. is what it really is. We can't cross. Um, when they're upstairs, I think that even though the glass is there, it's really intended almost as if it's not there. It's you. You are. You are better. You are. You are above ground. You are part of this elevated. I mean, the little home or the hotel rooms, these bungalows we talk about, they're actually elevated up off the structure. They're right. off the ground. They're kind of floating out there as the as the topography drops off to the creek bed below the riverbed, um, and it gives them this like uh, there's this there's a uh, rift in uh, separation. We're seeing this uh, imbalance in wealth and power and who has control and freedom which goes back to the favorite as well. Um, and then when you go down to the, when you're in the, the laboratory, you're in, you're in the basement. Yeah. You're down in the lab. You're in a bunker. Yeah. You're locked down, not to be escaped. You're protected from above, but you're also uh, confined. confined from yeah. above and yeah. from that freedom. And so that's, you know, that's the whole genesis of this, this experiment. I think the thing too is that the way that you, you talked about lighting earlier, and it's funny, this is a tangent, but it reminded me of, you know, one of the many bloopers we always like in Ford, old classic films, is the one when uh, Harrison Ford in Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. playing Indiana Jones, goes into the uh, into the tomb, into the pit where all the snakes are near the end of the final act of the movie, and he lands in the dust and looks up, and there is a king cobra right yeah. in front of him. <laughs> and you don't, you don't see it in all versions. Maybe they've cleaned it up uh, in post all the, after all these years, but um, you know how George Lucas can be. But um, <laughs> you see the reflection in the glass that separates him from the King Cobra. Just for oh, a moment. Oh, you're kidding. I never you noticed that. You do. And he has to be looking for it. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> it ruins that uh, shot. It, it does. <laughs> but also on a side note to that, the hieroglyphics that are on all the walls yeah. around him, C-3PO and R2-D2 from Star Wars A New Hope are one of the hieroglyphics no, right there, not. right next on the screen right there. So Now I'm going to have to go back and rewatch nerdy it. Nerdy <laughs> side thing. But the whole idea of the glass in that scene, I think, is and it, where I was going to go with that was lighting with glass. Yes. So the the back to the favorite. Um, it is this darker estate, yeah. right? And to that effect, there's really no artificial light used in the production. It's all natural light or practical light, candles, um, uh, reflections of sun, things like that. There is not, there's really, I mean, I'm sure they had some, but I don't think there's virtually any artificial light yeah. where they filmed that. And I think it's very, gives a, a much more richness and brooding nature to the film, which f f feeds into the loneliness. And we talked about Amadeus before, and how Amadeus is very brightly lit. Different yeah. period time of when the movie was made. The difference in the use of color. When yeah. you think of, when you think of um, the favorite, there's a lot of color in that movie. Yeah. It's very drab. It's very because because it's, there's not a lot of. It's light. very almost like the word that comes to mind is realistic. Oh, it is. Because when you think like um, I, I forget the um, the actor's name who plays the the one kind of male character. I mean, he's male, but uh, Harley. It's Harley. Yeah. Um, so he's. Yeah. Like you look, the the shots of him are so incredibly unflattering because you have you know they used to cake the makeup on, never take it off, and just, yeah. just keep adding layers, and they make it look like that in yeah. the film. It's not meant to be a flattering look at it, and I think that's true for the setting too. I mean, even even when we were talking about the queen in her room, it's not a flattering portrayal of the period and the style it's almost like a very what i would assume is a very real kind of portrayal of that they a bunch of sweaty pigs they're all grubby and they're very human and, and you look at the yeah. walls and you see the carpets and you're like yeah those have not been beaten out in two or three years you yeah. just feel the dirt in them and whatnot but but i think it makes it it, it it helps the film have such a 
bigger impact because it feels that much more authentic. Oh, yeah. And, and you feel, I think, with that same thing, it, it, it that carries over into the setting behind them. Yeah. And the architecture and everything is all these books. You can just almost smell the dust and the dirt and everything. And it's and it's very different. For being, for being a period piece, it totally puts the period piece, especially a period piece of the Victorian era, um, on its head. Yeah. Just completely. Because it does, instead of leaning into it the way a lot of movies do, bright colors and let's show off all this ornamentation and this opulence, they, they, they muddy, they, they, they grease up the lens. They muddy it up, right? Well, and, and I think that both films, they don't use a lot of sets. I mean, no. you think about Ex Machina, there's probably six setups. Like there's, you know, they're, they're basically six locations. But even for the favorite, they have the exterior where they're shooting the doves or pigeons or whatever yep, it yep. is. But inside, they have, like, the library, the queen's bedroom, uh, Lady Sarah's bedroom. Like, they have the kitchen. The main hall. That's about the it. hall. And that's about that's it. About like, it, they yeah. – the, it's not um, an extravagant amount of locations and scenes. No. Um, but I'm curious – so for you – when you watch something like The Favorite, and it is a period piece, so – and it and it has not a lot of sets – how with with Ex Machina, you can create those sets to be whatever you want. With a period, you're set inside this specific kind of set of guidelines and, yeah. and rules that kind of exist in people's minds when they think of a period piece that you really don't have a whole lot of room to play in. How do you feel like the architecture then – how do you allow the architecture to contribute to the story? Well, I think it goes back to uh, the how they filmed it. We talked about this early on, but I think that using those long shots, getting – I mean the amount of real estate on a frame that is devoted to people yeah. is 20 percent. Small, yes. Very small. These aren't yeah. – again, there's those moments when there's close-up shots, but generally you're always seeing the space they're in. And you're not even leaving it in the in the, in the scene yeah. where the camera's panning over or it's, it's that – and even with that panning, it's since you're using this – and I'm not the film guy, but I – or the – the actual DP. Yeah. Yeah. But with that, that six millimeter fisheye lens, when you pan from one side of the room to the other, you're not moving that far. You no. already were catching it in your peripheral and it's just kind of refocusing. It's almost the when you're in like Google Street View for most people yeah. and you're looking at it. Like we do this a lot in, in our studio and probably other people do. We're looking at a building or a site yeah. and we find it on Google Maps and we drop our little, little, little person down yep. and suddenly we're getting a photo view of it and then we're like, let's pivot over so we can get a better view and that whole distortion you get from that fisheye lens comes into play. Yeah. And uh, it kind of reminded me of that. But to your question, the environment is just so central to yeah. everything. And when I saw this movie, it was like a Friday night. I think it was the day it was released. It may have been a Thursday, but it was we went down to uh, to a movie theater. This is, you know, 2018. Right? Yeah. And, uh, we, and for some reason, we got there late, and we ended up sitting pretty far forward. I think we were only like four or five rows back. So, we so you're doing the neck up. thing. Yeah, and yeah. That, and then you have these <laughs> these huge shots. Yeah, and it was just like wow. Like I did at the time, I didn't register what I was watching. Like I, I was so enthralled by the storyline and the characters, and I didn't know what I was going into either. Yeah. Um, my partner, she picked this movie, I think, and I was like, yeah, totally. I want to see this. This was the no sacrifice idea. one. You know, she went to RoboCop with you, so you <laughs> went did. with her to the favorite. She did. She did. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I think it's about the same time. I think we just went and saw RoboCop yep. filmed on, or projected on the side of City Hall <laughs> within a matter of months of that. And she was a good sport. So so we went and it was a great movie. Yeah. yeah it took time to process like what I had seen and like how it was filmed because I didn't understand it at first. So I, I look at, 
I'm not a filmmaker. Yeah. I love film. I'm not, I'm not a filmmaker. So it takes a while to register sometimes. Like, why did I experience certain emotions beyond just the storyline? The way that you did. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it had to do with how it was filmed. And so, and the same thing again with, with Ex Machina is that it is just, it has some tropes in the sense of um, the minimalist architecture and small spaces, but the use of glass was incredibly um, refreshing. It was a metaphor. It was yeah. complex. It played... It had multiple meanings in the storyline, but also it didn't. Um, it was true to the setting that the movie was made in, the genre was made in. I mean, it's still very much science fiction, but not so futuristic. Uh, almost in the sense, I think someone said, if this AI was found to be real today, yeah. like right now, even in this whatever seven years after the movie was made, um, we'd probably be a little surprised, but we probably would take it in stride and go, "Wow, yeah, okay, this is cool. I, I think we're here." And it's it, not yeah, so otherworldly as it used mm-hmm, to be. Mm-hmm. Um, one long shelf life. I think it, yeah. and I'd be curious to see how long a shelf life. Because a lot of movies that are trying to be forward thinking in the year nineteen eighty five. Yeah. <laughs> the world has come to it, you know, I mean like, you, you've seen that graphic of like where we are in the history of oh, sci fi yeah. movies and we're like halfway through the yeah, list. Yeah, two thousand and one or yeah. <laughs> nineteen ninety seven Judgment Day for Terminator. I mean, all these oh. things are obviously long. But I think a movie like this manages to be have a pretty long shelf life because it doesn't try to be too futuristic or too forward thinking. Well, I, I, so switching gears just a little bit, because one of the things that we'll often talk about, you know, obviously when you have something that has um, a, a fair amount of setting or a fair amount of architecture, there's going to be a price tag to it. Yeah. And what I loved with these when we were kind of debating which movies to look at, both of these have a $15 million budget. For the stars and the the um, content they were covering, really efficient budget, oh, yeah. not extravagant by any means. Greg Gatsby was a $120 million movie, so, something like that. So you think about, you know, you people definitely spend a ridiculous amount of money on setting and on what that what that scene's going to look Waterworld, like. Waterworld, Kevin Costner. Oh, man. $250 million in 1994. But I can't see, like, okay, you give them another $15 million. I don't see it making the films any better yeah. at all. Like this, I think... I think the setting they nailed. Yeah. Um, it makes I, you wonder, could they have made the Titanic for $15 million? No, probably not. And why is that? There, why, there why are, there are that? well, because— Break it down for me. There's a certain amount of money that's just going to go—you you don't know it's not setting, but it's just VFX. And that immediately adds a huge price tag. And like you were saying earlier— they didn't green screen this for Ex Machina. They they shot as much of it practically. Obviously, there's some, there's a, a fair amount of VFX in her figure, but um, you know I, I I love the idea that you know you can you can do these incredibly compelling and A twenty four is really good at doing this. These beautiful films, these beautiful stories that have setting playing a pivotal role in telling the story, yeah. but you're not spending. Anywhere near what you know, a lot of blockbusters spend in terms of VFX and green screen and everything yeah. else. Well, the thing too is that now, the Ex Machina has a cast of four, five, like technically five, five with, with the helicopter. Yoko. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, and okay, so yeah. yes, we have another, we have another character, another AI in the movie who is um, an earlier version of a robot. Yep. And she is. There's actually a really interesting scene where she and Oscar Isaac both have a dance scene. Yes. Very, very, it almost belongs in The Favorite. So first time I watched the film, that was the first time I thought, I bet that's a robot. That was where I was like, oh, he programmed. Like, he's that egotistical. He would want a dance partner that would be based off of his movements. Um, Let me pull up. uh, Yeah, Kyoto. 
Kyoko. Kyoko. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that, that cast of five, right? Yep. Really, it's three. Yeah. Most of the movie is three people. Um, and then you look at the favorite, and the favorite, now it's got a, a much larger cast. There are some scenes where there's, you know, three or four scores of people yeah. in the settings, but generally the cast of that movie is about three or four people. Right. Right. And maybe yep. that's not that typical for a lot of movies, but it's interesting how everything focuses around a handful of people in yep. the same settings, and they go back to these low budgets and, and how they accomplish how important the dialogue is and how important the setting is to these. And yeah. going back to the genre thing, which is kind of where we started in all this, um, the genre of the science fiction, the cerebral science fiction thriller, the I think the architecture is actually very fitting. And go back to that whole timeless thing. I mean, the interesting thing about architecture, and we, we were actually having a conversation in the studio about this at lunchtime. We were we were um, categorizing some of Dallas's more prominent buildings into their uh, stylistic movement. Yeah. And we were talking about how in architecture today, um, there's a lot of debate about what are the prevalent theories of what's What's moving the needle? Not right. just like a style, but actually a movement, a theory. Like what artificial theories are at play that we are testing in order to make the next building better? And what are we basing that information on? How do we approach that iterative process? And where we are right now in architecture is that I think that we're, we have been, and a lot of people have talked about this, we're in a long period of time of a lot of formal change in architecture and technological change, but the theories aren't really being pushed the way that we've moved into modernism over the last century. And what I mean by that is that a lot of buildings are derivative and look the same more than ever. And there's a lot of things. We get into the whole conversation about that. But where that ties back to Ex Machina is that you're talking about a modern home. That home, that home really from the outside, from how it's filmed, mm-hmm. it could have been in North by Northwest yeah. in the early 50s. And it probably could still be seen in a movie 25, 30 years from now. It could easily be printed, and, <laughs> 3D printed. Yes. And so it, it, has a, it has a certain degree of timelessness to yeah. it. Or a longer shelf life, I'll put it that way. It has a much longer shelf life. And by nature of being a period piece, the favorite is very specific to a certain time point. Yep. But that also gives it a timelessness because it is a period piece. It's saying, hey, you can you can take that movie and put it up against Amadeus and Ten other movies done over the last over, Oliver Twist and like movies over the last seventy years, and there are a lot of parallels. Now, they're, how they're filmed, the content they cover may be totally different, but they start from the same genre. We're doing a period piece. Well, and they are—I mean, to be honest with you—they are contributing to their own set of rules because mm-hmm. none of us are old enough to to know what the period actually looked like, right? And certainly, we have paintings and we have reference, but. You know, the the favorite and Amadeus and Red Violin and other period pieces contribute to what we think of as a period piece for a certain, you know, section of time. Yeah. Um, whereas I think to your point with Ex Machina, it's, it, there's there's um, it's more based on an architectural principle yes. that is seen and it can be kind of, you know, manipulated and. And um, the design can be, you know, have some customization to it. But in general, it's based on this kind of architectural movement or principle. Yeah. It's a minimal modernist setting. It's a machine. It's what it is, which is what the machine for living uh, modern architecture is about. Yeah. And very different than the setting of, uh, you know, a, a Victorian estate that is just a series of room after room after room. Yeah. We talked about that. We saw that in Amadeus as well. Yeah. Uh, we talked about that a lot. Might as well have made it one of the movies. But uh, my next, next next episode, time, next time. Uh, but I think it's really interesting to see that and these comparisons. And you bring it all back to this whole loneliness and the environment we're in, isolation, isolation. Yeah. I think these are just fascinating that you can co- you can cover these same basic 
human needs and and power rifts um, in such vastly different settings and genres. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. But how effective the architecture is. Like if we try to take either one of those movies, let's, let's start with Ex Machina, and we were to say we want the same story. Um, I'm trying to think how we could do this game. You want me to type in yeah. a chat GPT and yeah, have it just really, kick out a version? That's a little bit too meta <laughs> for me, I think. But but imagine we're trying to do a, a similar story where somebody's captive. Let's yeah. say it's someone who's uh, never been, who grew up in the wild or whatever. It's a wildling. Mm -hmm. And someone else is they're they're um, controlling them and keeping them captive. They're capt they're captor, and but instead we're going to set this in um, 1950s Detroit suburbia or something yeah. like that, right? Like, can you can you tell the same story? Like, how does how much does that influence the story? How much will it change the story? Like, it's amazing how you, you know, we talked about this actually. We've talked about this before. We talked we talked about movies. We've talked about the idea of. Um, Avatar, mm -hmm. 2009. It's a Western. Yes. It's also <laughs> 1991's yep. uh, Dance of the Wolves. Yep. Is that the right year? 1989. Man, I'm going to miss. I'm going to get. It's really close. Viewers to are going to call in on that one. Yeah. Right? All five of <laughs> Please them. Please do. <laughs> um, but it's also Fern Gully, early yeah. 90s animated yep. film. All the same. It could also basic be. Story. Well, yeah. The the I, I was thinking Treasure Planet and the. the yeah. I mean, there's, there's time after time, it's yeah. some of these same stories. Yeah just get kind of remade. But I, I, to your point, I, I think the thing that makes Ex Machina different is she, yeah. there, there's a humanity that doesn't exist in her. Yes. But that she really wants. Yes. And like the scene, we, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. There's the, when she and Kyoto, I think like Kyoko stabs him you think maybe because of what how he treated her in the past, or maybe it's because he was attacking Ava, uh, Ava to begin with. But the way that I mean, they handle the the knife going in, and then when he turns around and Ava grabs the knife and stabs him, it is it is so. It's not even surgical. It was just like I'm gonna see what this does. Like I'm gonna do this, and it, it's there's no passion, there's no emotion behind He's it. He's an obstacle. Exactly, and. Um, and when he walk, when she walks over and gets on her knees and just kind of watches him die, yeah, it, you just see it's just it's there's something it, it, that's exactly what it is, and I don't think you could tell that story in a compelling way and uh, without her not having humanity. Fair enough. Um, thing, also, too, is that all all of those characters that are in that movie um, in uh, Ex Machina have um, uh, biblical names, and I mean. E right. Ava is a play on Eve, A V A versus E V E, right? Yep. First woman. Yep. That's what she is. It's, it's an interesting little this I love we talked about last time one of the movies that, that you brought to the table um was um oh uh, the eugenics movie. Um, yeah. Uh, Gattaca. Gattaca, yeah. And Gattaca has so many layers. And after we talked about it, I think we carried on the conversation for quite a while about how many other things we could have gotten into and the yeah. metaphors in that movie and subtle things with lighting and color. And I think that when you can find those layers in a movie, um, upon repeated watching sometimes, yeah. it is just uh, it's delightful. And I yeah. think I, I think it's one of the things we talked about early on when we started this podcast was the the parallels just between architecture and film. How architecture also is very complicated, and there's so many layers to it. There's yep. so many 
there's so much authorship from so many different people in a good piece of architecture that there are things you have to keep coming back for to pick up on details that are lost sometimes on your first experience with it. Totally. Like that. I, I could not I agree that. more. Like people will give a director credit for the depth of a film and, 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 and 100 percent. You know, the director is, you know, kind of typically where the buck stops, right? Yeah, like, yeah. so you, you, you have to give them their due for that vision. That said, the, I mean, the casting directors, yeah. the, the, um, uh, the DP, the editor, the um, uh, uh, musical director, sure. the person direct, the scene director, like they they all have ownership in creating, just like you said, those layers of a film that are similar to how multiple architects, designers, engineers, even straight down to the GCs will have oh, yeah. ownership in how that building is created in layers. Yeah. And all those together. And, and But you still have to have a handful of players. You have to have that, that lead the effort, Absolutely. like the director, the producer. The same thing with architecture. We have a project manager and our firm will have a an architectural project, we have a project manager, a project architect, and we have staff yep. architects, we have technical services um, providing us uh, you know, clarity and information on specifications, uh, we have a design oversight, all these different roles are playing to make it something great. And it's almost, sometimes it's almost a miracle something good comes out of yeah. all the authorship, <laughs> but it works because you have a good process in place. Well, and I, I think to that point, you know, it's, it, when, it makes it special when something comes out and at the end you can tell, you, you just have this sense of pride. I, I, I'm thinking of a couple of projects that, that Corgan's worked on that you just, you're like, oh man, like I'm glad, I, I may have had nothing to do with it except, you know, in my role have done a rendering or an animation, but I, I love the ownership that that project would bring. Well, James, thank you so much for having this conversation. I love any excuse to uh, tell my wife I need to watch movies for work. <laughs> um, and I uh, am excited about some possibilities that are coming. A huge thank you to Adam Flaw, our producer, because he is the third person that's not up here and helping us figure out, you know, kind of how we're going to attack these things. Absolutely. Are thanks. we? Yeah, thanks. Thank, no, thank you for having me on here. Yeah. I think that you know, one of the, it's a it's a joy to uh, to go home and watch some movies so we can record them for for this uh, this podcast at the Square. And I think that you know we talk about next movies and where we're going with all this. The holidays are coming up on us. I'll be home a lot. There's a lot of movies. Sing. I may be home alone sometimes and need to watch something. I don't know. I mean, you know, I may be having Christmas with the cranks. Cranks. <laughs> so we'll see what happens next. I love but it. thank you so much for watching or listening, whichever you're doing, and make sure to check out the next episode of the Square.